Welcome to the Life Giver Podcast. This is your host, Corey Weathers. I'm a clinician, military spouse, and advocate, and my co-host for this season is Sarah Foster, a first responder spouse, mom, and homesteader. Join us for season seven, where we invite you into honest conversation about life, family, and home. So grab that cup of coffee or head out for a walk. It's time to reconnect with what matters most. Through all the storms I'm by your side Through days of warmth I'm by your side Like the stars and the moon in the nighttime sky I'm by your side Welcome to the Life Giver Podcast. This is your host, Sarah Foster, and this is uh, season seven reconnect. And if you've been listening, uh, I think Corey and I defined it as um, coming back to contact again with something after a long ac- absence. And so if you've been listening to our podcast, we've had um, multiple topics, what that means to reconnect with yourself, how to be react or how to be proactive versus reactive. But we also wanted to feature stories um, of people who have lived this and walked through things where they've had to kind of circle back, reconnect to what matters most. So today I am bringing you my two very special guests, um, Ken and Wendy Grubbs. I met them just a few months ago at a Bless the Badge event, and their story is as a police wife, um, just very, their perspective through their trauma is very powerful. And I just knew that I wanted to bring them on um, so you guys could just hear and just glean. Because I think, you know, I mentioned in the episode, um, proactive versus reactive, that I think many wives or many um, supporting spouses in this lifestyle can kind of live a life of God. I hope not. I hope that critical incident doesn't happen. I hope that trauma doesn't happen. Um, But what we really want to highlight here is um, not just the critical incident, but also what that there is hope on the other side and that there can be a tremendous reconnect and a tremendous um, blessing and kind of even something maybe greater even that can come. Um, from things that we often fear the most. So I'm just going to kick it off and let them introduce themselves. So Ken and Wendy, welcome. Thank you. Hello. (laughs) We're excited to be here. Thank you for having us. So I'm Ken Grubbs and uh, just to kind of give you a background, I joined Cincinnati Police Department in 1998. In uh, March of 2000, I was involved in my first critical incident. Uh, Later that year in November, I met my wife and we began dating then. And then in 2004, I was smart enough to pop the question and she said yes. And then in 2014, in February of that year, I was all involved in my second critical incident. And then in 2017, I was involved in my third critical incident where I was shot in the line of duty. Um, and then in 2020, I retired from Cincinnati Police Department. And I said all three of those were critical incidents, but all three critical incidents for me were officer-involved shootings. I know that there's a myriad of things out there that are critical incidents, but those were my three over the years anyway. And then uh, in 2018, was it, we, uh, my wife found Bless the Badge out of Texas and invited them up here for a conference. And was it the following year, 2019? I think so. 2019, <laughs> they actually asked us to uh, join them and be part of them. Yeah. Yes. So interestingly, he, he shared that chronological there of his police career. But what I will say is I was always, you know, back to your point, Sarah, on like where you live on the spectrum, right? Do you live in fear or do you live in, you know, anticipation versus just kind of passive about it, if you will. Right. And in my case, I just prayed, you know, I knew that this was his calling. I knew there wasn't anything I could do about it. But what I also knew was that I guess I didn't even know it so well at the time, but he really protected me. I didn't know a lot of what went on. If I asked questions, I'd find out that kind of thing. And then as he mentioned with the the critical incident in 2017, that was a really rough journey. And we'll talk more about that in a few minutes, but um, it kind of leaves you with the question of what now? right? What, Lord, what are you doing with this? And what are we supposed to do with this? And so we did seek out Bless the Badge uh, because what I found was as a wife, there wasn't a whole lot available Mm -hmm. for 
us, um, you know, there was a fair amount for, for the officers at the time. I mean, I don't even think we had peer support then. So, I mean, it's evolved a lot through the years. But, you know, there just wasn't a lot. And so that really led to finding Bless the Badge. And, you know, we, we told our story for the first time in 2019. And it's kind of gone from there. As, as you mentioned, we were asked to join the team and it's just been a real blessing for us. Yeah, I love that. And I, I feel similar. I know um, part of my story is sharing that, you know, when you looked, I had this point in our career where I'm like, I need help and I need to know how to do this well. And there was like nothing like, and so it's come a long way. And um, Wendy had me out um, at Bless the Badge in Indiana. So like so much resource there that I wish I had had in those early years. Cause I, that's what I would like to kind of hear really quick. Wendy is like, so it sounds like you went into police life. Like you met Ken and he already was an officer. Is that correct? And he'd already had one critical incident at that point. Right. Yeah. You know, you, you probably, as you were dating, were like, what would it be like to be married to a cop? And you know, it's all exciting and fun at first. I would imagine, you know, it was the idea of it was exciting to me, you know, when I was dating Kenny. So. Oh yeah. And definitely the uh, attraction to the badge for sure. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, like you said, I actually did a couple ride alongs with them and, and that was really powerful for me because I, I think it, it put my mind at ease just seeing that he was really well-respected first of all, and he was really good at what he did. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think that was an answer prayer in a way, but, but to your point, because I married into it, you know, it was part of accepting who he was and and this was the life we were you know, going to endeavor together. Um, but honestly, I didn't really think of myself as a police wife until we went to that last incident. Uh, we, you know, I mean, we knew that the blue family was there and, you know, we, we'd had our several critical incidents within the city. We had, you know, line of duty death. I mean, we've had a number of things we've gone through. So we knew that connection was there, but until we went through that, we didn't know the power of the thin blue line. And, and I would, highly encourage, I think Ken was going to mention this, so sorry to steal your thunder, but if you, um, if you Google his name or, or YouTube it, you know, there's a lot out there that really speaks to, obviously the body cams out there and they use it for training purposes and that kind of thing. But, but what you can see is the community coming together. So it was even more than just the thin blue line. It was a, a community that was grateful right for for the sacrifice that was made and i like to tell the story actually we um we came home after three days days, yeah yeah. and i remember you know and and it was like having a newborn candidly like he needed medication every three hours and who'd have thought i would be treating a gun several gunshot wounds four of them to be exact so you know it was one of those obviously traumatic things even coming home you know Mm -hmm equipped and you know not prepared to to handle that but I remember I started having these extreme allergies and I'm like what is going on I can't get sick in the middle of this and it turns out it was because our house was covered I mean covered in flowers in cookies and cards and kids and schools they they made all these beautiful it was just the most beautiful thing to just look around it was it was so bad that my neighbor next door what do they call those things those fruit bouquets or whatever arrangements. Yeah. 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 Said, if that van goes by your house one more time, I'm going to stop them and tell them we, you are not accepting any more deliveries. <laughs> <laughs> it was just the showering of support, which, you know, was really beautiful. So, yeah. yeah. Well, I'd love for you guys. Um, cause like Ken, you kind of did a good job highlighting, you know, I think in an officer's career, there can be many, like you said, even in just first responder life, there are many things that can be defined as a critical incident. And obviously those first two were officer involved shootings. And then the third being that you yourself also were shot. And so, um, I think that is definitely where we want to go with your story today of just hearing more of that you know, um, story. So if you want to open and maybe just walk us through, um, we were talking before we hit record and you guys do have, like you said, online, there's, um, videos and things like the body cam and, and the, the footage that I was able to see at bless the badge. It was a kind of a put together thing that shares your story. And since we can't necessarily, because so much of it is video, uh, we can't necessarily share it on the podcast. If you could just kind of walk us through, um, you know, the timeline or, or th- that entire event, and then we'll kind of go back and kind of process it as, to both sides, even of like what that was like walking through all of that. 
Absolutely. We knew this building well from patrolling it. He was checking to see if anybody might run out of a back door while I kind of started to walk up into the courtyard. And as I was walking up there, he happened to be the uh, suspect who happened to be walking out of uh, the door of the apartment building itself. Actually, it's a, it's a U-shaped apartment building and there's four separate entrances where people can go down. And he was kind of in the far back right one as you're walking up to the building. Anyway, he's kind of walking toward me and I'm kind of walking toward him and he's not really acknowledging my presence. And as we just as we get closer together, uh, he just doesn't do anything else, but brings a gun up and immediately fires. And uh, on my gun belt, I actually carry the key fob to the car hanging off a little key loop right on my right in front of my right leg. Well, as he fired, the bullet actually hit that key fob and ricocheted and it went through my scrotum and into my left inner thigh and out the side of my leg. And of course, I returned fire. He was struck several times in the return fire and I was kind of backpedaling and backed up and fell down just because uh, my legs started to give out on me. It was kind of the uh, the effect of the gunshot was was starting to affect my body. And uh, anyway, I returned fire. He was struck several times. And of course, we called the cavalry in. We're calling on the radio shots fired and everything. And everybody shows up. Uh, they get him in custody. And of course, I get carted off to the hospital. He goes to the hospital. We end up in the same ER room, literally next to each other. And uh, while they're working on us. So that was kind of an odd thing, you know, to realize that yeah. the shot is right in literally in the next room. Um, but anyway, so I, after three days, I was allowed to go home to recover the rest of the way. And then after a month, I was cleared to go back to light duty. And after 60 days, I was cleared to go back to full duty with full recovery, basically. I think what's so interesting about this life um, and having been through a critical incident ourselves, it's like, I know it, it came as a time where like, I was just sitting on the bed, like uh, making a photo book, like, and like, you know, like I'm just in a completely different world. And I got this phone call that was very eye opening. And so I'd, I'd love to hear kind of where you were um, when you received that information and what that was like. Yeah, sure. So um, similarly, just normal life, right? It was Saturday night. I remember I actually wasn't feeling really well that night. And so I, the kids and I were watching a movie. I had fallen asleep. And so my one son actually fell asleep with me and the other one had gone up to bed and um, woke up to the doorbell. And as I was because the way that our bedroom is set up, the front door is right outside of our bedroom and it has um, those side lights. And so I knew if I poked around the corner, whoever was there would be able to see me. So I grabbed my phone and saw that his partner had called several times. And so I, I knew obviously something was wrong. Uh, came around the corner, could see the officers on the porch. And it was just, you know, every police wife's worst nightmare, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so opened the door and um, they didn't know anything really other than we needed to go. He had been shot. They didn't know his condition. They didn't know if he was going to make it or not. We needed to go. And so I remember just kind of being stunned for a second. But then, you know, the sense of urgency kind of kicks in. We needed to get my other son ready, get out the door. Um, you know, all the things that I probably should have thought of, I didn't around like what the kids would need and, and that kind of thing. It was just get out the door. Mm -hmm. So we we get out the door and there's two cop cars there. They they anticipated the kids coming, um, but the kids didn't want to be separate from me and that would have required them to be in the other vehicle. And so the boys, they were little at the time. Um, they actually sat in the, the bad guy part of the police car and uh, through the bulletproof window held my hand. And all I know is we were going really fast. And at one point, the officer actually said she thought she was getting pulled over because we were in an unmarked car. Um, she's like, get on the radio, tell them we're not stopping. And I mean, we were flying. We're what, probably 35, 40 minutes from the city and we got there pretty quick. Um, so we, we got there and I remember his old partner, not the current partner, uh, was there when I got out of the car 
And I remember him talking to me, but I, I was just in this complete, I don't know, it was surreal. I, I couldn't even process who he was. He told me who he was. And then we walked into the hospital. And as soon as we got into like the main area, <clears throat> I was greeted by um, an officer and, and um, one of the chaplains who took our boys. And then as I went down this hallway, it was just lined with cops. Um, none of whom would look at me. They wouldn't make eye contact with me. And um, finally, you know, navigated around and, and got to him. And um, he was gowned up and getting ready. I think you were in an x-ray room yeah. at that time. And I remember just holding on to him. And he's like, honey, you need to go. I have to go get surgery now. And, you know, I was just oblivious. I had no idea what was going on. Um, so they um, took him for surgery. I, I got an update from the doctor after that was done. And then, as he said, there were some eye-opening things through it. There, there were some uh, choice words throughout it from some of the, the leadership team when they found out that the bad guy was literally just a couple rooms over from us and his family was in and out and that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, so then he, it was interesting. I mean, just there were a lot of learnings along the way. Like for example, he was there three days. I wasn't allowed to be alone, um, which I didn't quite understand at the time, but it was for my safety given that the bad guy's family was there as well. Um, and then he went home after the three days. And as I mentioned, it was learning how to treat gunshot wounds and uh, nonstop, you know, around the clock medication. And, you know, just trying to balance that with, you know, keeping our boys as in as normal of a schedule as possible. Um, and then what he didn't mention that I, I think is an important part of the story is 18 months later, we finally went to trial. And so the bad guy had prolonged it over and over and over again. And, and what I'll say about the trial is that I thought I knew everything. And I think I think I had heard everything, right? All mm -hmm. the bits and pieces of the story. Mm -hmm. But it's very different to go through it in a court in a courtroom where it's sequential and, and you're hearing it from him directly, paired with the body cam, and then his partner needs to go through and tell his story. Um, and probably the biggest thing that I would say that was really, really difficult during that time was he went into cop mode. And so, you know, at a time that I was incredibly emotional, uh, you know, he, he needed to be a cop at that point, right? Like he had mm -hmm. facts and he had to obviously do what they do in a courtroom. So, yeah, I mean, I even went so far as to tell her, Hey, when I'm up there testifying, you've got to sit where I can't see your face. Because as soon as I start going into the details and I see you get emotional, I'm going to get emotional. And I wanted to be so laser focused on my testimony and not giving the defense attorney any opportunity to poke holes in the story, basically, that do do what they do. Yeah. So like, you've got to sit somewhere. I can't see you, at least while I'm testifying. <laughs> yeah. what I think that's a beautiful picture of what you're saying, like that you were both able to express, well, that Ken, you were able to express, this is what I need. Wendy, what did that feel like? For, were you thinking like, yes, like I want to give this to you? Or was that like, was that hard to also, you know, you said he was going into cop mode and when we see like how necessary it would be that he needs to function like that, but then you are still in that state. So what, what was that kind of like knowing that it was important, obviously for him to to be doing what he was doing. But then I guess in a way, are you kind of saying like, it's maybe like, you know, you've got your cop mode, but you're like, where's my husband? Like, you know, like I need like the husband, maybe the emotional support or, you know, what was that like? Well, that's exactly what it was because I don't feel like I was prepared. I've had the opportunity to connect with several wives since then that have gone through similar things. And, and that's really one of my key messages to them is I'm yourself with your tribe right? You need your tribe during that time because, you know, he needs to do his job, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it was, to answer your question, it was really hard. I, mm -hmm. I think I did a lot of like game day planning. So I wasn't as prepared, but I did, we did have a lot of family and friends there and it was fine. I mean, it worked out. Yeah. But 
you know, it's, you know, he's a different person when he's in cop mode, right? Well, yeah. Yeah. We all know. I mean, it, maybe not all the listeners out there, but those of us who are in law, we know what cop mode means. <laughs> I think our kids know what cop mode means. You know, we all know it. So I'm listening and I'm kind of seeing like different phases almost of this. So, so Ken, were you conscious the whole time? So yes, I was conscious the whole time. Um, probably initially, you know, that with the initial thoughts that I had, um, right after being shot, I'm laying there, you know, the bad guys in custody and everything like that. And I did certainly begin to contemplate, you know, what, what's coming next, you know, is this it for me now? I knew where I was hit. I knew the femoral arteries right there. And I certainly knew that it could be a matter of minutes that I could, uh, this could be it for me or not. Um, a little bit more into our story later, I'll share a little bit more about what we, how we came to do things we do and how we do them. But I will tell you that I certainly felt like God spoke to me that night and told me that I wasn't done, that he's got things for me to do. So that was certainly a um, out of body experience, I guess you might describe it as, but it certainly wasn't, it wasn't like there was another cop talking to me. It wasn't like I was talking to myself, trying to keep myself going. It was something from somewhere else without a doubt speaking to me and kind of putting that calm over me. Those first few days, I can tell you that they had me take, I think it's Percocet, mm-hmm. whatever that combination of drug is. And it really kind of emotionally detached me a little bit for those first couple of days. Like I remember Wendy coming in or I remember friends and family coming over, but I don't really remember a lot about those initial con- I knew they would talk to me and I knew I would talk back, but those initial days with that Percocet and I, I felt terrible. It was like after what my first doctor appointment I went to probably about a week later, the first thing I did was ask the doctor, is there something else I can take differently than these kind of drugs? And thank goodness. He actually said, well, if you can handle just using ibuprofen as a painkiller, um, could feel free to. And that was, that was definitely a groundbreaking kind of crossing the bridge event where I felt more connected. Now I felt like I could communicate, not that I was, you know, out of my mind or anything like that. I just kind of felt like a zombie just going through the paces a little bit those first few days. Yeah. Uh, The drugs certainly didn't help. I just felt kind of disconnected. And then I was definitely, I would say the post-traumatic stress that they, everybody, you know, that's the key term nowadays or phrase. Um, I'd been through critical incidents before where, you know, after a critical incident, particularly an officer involved shooting, you kind of replay it in your mind a lot, Mm -hmm. nitpick and pull it apart and think, what could I have done? What should I have done? Stuff like that. Um, This one was different. It didn't go away. I mean, after, even after a week or two weeks, it never went away. I mean, I was, it was as if a picture of a movie was playing right, right behind your eyes. I mean, I could see people talk to people and interact with them. But for quite a while there, it was always replaying in my mind, no matter what it did. You know, you close your eyes at night, it was still there, stuff like that. And those were kind of the first uh, week to a couple months playing out of how that went. Um, I can tell you that we leaned on each other a lot. Uh, One thing we decided to do up front is, well, mainly me toward her. Um, from my side of things, I, you know, I chose to lean on my wife a lot. I didn't necessarily ever feel that compulsion that I had to go seek out a professional psychologist, psychiatrist or a psychologist or anything like that. I really just opened up to her. She was kind of my therapy early on. And from then on, really. And, uh, you know, and at the same time, if she asked me a question, I made a decision that I had to, I needed to answer it. And, and particularly, you know, she, if I was having a nightmare or sleeping and she sensed I was having a nightmare. She would wake me up and say, are you all right? Are you okay? And uh, what was your dream about? And most of the time it would be, I was reliving the shooting and everything. And then we would kind of stay awake and kind of talk and talk through it a little bit. And that was certainly something that helped out just simply her being there and being present and knowing when she sensed that maybe I was doing something a little bit odd or a little bit off Another thing that she kind of pointed out to me one day is she said, you know, I know when you're talking to the kids, I hear a little bit of anger in your voice. You're not being mean to the kids. You're not being nasty to the kids, but I just, it sounds like there's anger in your voice when you talk to them. And it, you know, that her holding me accountable made me kind of reflect on why is that, why am I coming across that way? 
And I kind of realized it, that I was holding on to anger toward, toward the guy that shot me. I was hanging on to anger that I had toward him and through no connection, there was no connecting the dots. It was simply kind of seething out that through that way, that was the way it was finding its way out of me. And it was translating into just me being irritable and especially for no reason at all toward my kids. So it really mm -hmm. caused me to think about how I was approaching my children, thinking about, and generally just interactions and making sure that I wasn't letting those things creep out into my everyday life. And I also had to recognize that I needed to let go of that anger. Mm -hmm. I couldn't be angry at him anymore. Mm -hmm. What I'm hearing is again, like, I think you guys have just done a really great job of being able to meet each other's needs and, and communicate like through difficult things. Because I, I will say, even with our officer involved shooting critical incident, um, I always say like, there's his story, but there's my story. And it's like, there's like, there's this time where it's like, okay, it's your turn, you know, and like, you got to almost take turns. Cause it's like, there, there's the person that lives through the actual incident, but then there's this whole other like subset of things that you're living through because it's just as traumatic, but on a different level, what was that like, um, kind of juggling both of those? Yeah. So to kind of start back again from when we came home, you know, as he said, there was <clears throat> a lot of late night discussion where, you know, we we're just leaning into each other and, you know, he may ask you to delete this part, but I'm going to be honest, which was, you know, he was honest about where he got shot. And, and candidly, you know, when you go through any kind of incident, right, as couples, you tend to, you know, there's a level of intimacy that comes with that and, and you want that connection and you want to be close to that person again. And there was a lot of question in both of our minds around whether we would ever be intimate with each other again, if that mm -hmm. would be possible. And so that was, that was hard, you know, mm -hmm. at the beginning, everything's good now. So, no there. Um, but you know, there, there was some concern, right. Mm -hmm. On both our parts around what that would look like. And so, you know, we talked, when he says that we talked, we talked about the, the incident itself. We talked about what it means in our family. We talked a lot about our boys. What do we need to do? Right. So while we didn't actually seek counsel and we really leaned into each other, both of our boys were in counseling. Mm -hmm. He did that. Um, and they needed different types of counseling, like how it affected them was, you know, independently different. And, and so we still work through some things there. Um, but he mentioned, you know, the anger piece that it's ironic. We're actually sitting right next to our workout area, which is where his punching bag is. And, and that's really what he took to. Um, even to this day, like, you know, I've even asked him, I, I think that's part of it is I, I feel like when you walk through that, there's almost a boldness that comes with it where it's like, I'm not afraid to ask questions anymore. And I'm not mm -hmm. afraid to, to lean in and really push when maybe he doesn't want to talk about things to some extent. You know, for example, when he was hitting the punching bag, I'm like, what are you thinking about? And, you know, he was honest with me, you know, mm -hmm. about the bad guy. And, and that's good, right? It's a way of managing that anger, right? Yeah. Um, it's a healthier way than being cranky at the boys, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, for me as an individual, I feel like because I saw, I, I feel like I almost went into like, uh, you know, you hear the term bridge the gap a lot and it means a lot of different things. But to me, what it meant was even with the community and the blue family, to some extent of like, we, we saw this community that loved him so much and we saw the blue family show up and love him so much. And, and part of what, you know, I've tried to do is educate people to say, you know, and, and civilians, right. Around, it doesn't have to be anything elaborate. Just say, thank you. Look them in the eye and say, thank you. Officers, mm -hmm. see where you are, right. Buy their coffee, right. Mm -hmm. um, you know, have pizza delivered to the department, all that stuff matters, which is really what led me initially, even before lost the badge. Um, I'm still involved with Police Vibes of Ohio, and we do a lot of things here locally uh, just to, you know, bring their spirits up, you know, shower them with love because we know it's a hard job. It's a really hard job. And so that's probably the biggest thing for me personally is I used to, I knew my husband was a cop, but that didn't mean I, I needed to do anything about it necessarily. Now I feel like I need to do something about it. Right. Yeah. And it's, again, a lot of it's just basic awareness of, you know, they're, they're humans. Right. 
Mm -hmm. So on the support side, then, like you were saying, like Police Wives of Ohio, were these things that came after this incident or did you have some of that already in the works before? I mean, we would, we had a few friends. I mean, I mean, we're friends with a lot of people, so it wasn't really that. We would go to the FOP picnic, um, but we really weren't that social, I would say. Yeah, I wouldn't wouldn't say we were necessarily actively involved in any groups or anything like that. I mean, we're just caught up in the hecticness of life and raising kids and stuff like that. And I would say just to kind of backtrack a little bit, we talked about what did we kind of do? You know, I'd been involved in a couple couple other officer involved shootings and of course, you know, day-to-day work, you know, there's plenty of things that go on on any given day and the, the, just the grind of being a a police officer and everything. Um, A lot of those years, I kind of sheltered her a little bit of, what went on, you know, she would ask, how am I doing? How was my day? And I would give her probably most of the time, the G rated version. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I really, uh, that kind of changed for us after this, after walking through this is I made the decision that I can't do that to her because I am, I'm sheltering her where she shouldn't be sheltered because then I'm leaving a lot of grayness in our marriage that there shouldn't be a gray area. It should be open in both ways. And, everything. And it just helped open up the lines of communication by, you know, after that, after 2017, I said, you know, I, when she asked me, I need to, I need to tell her. And maybe sometimes, even if she doesn't ask, I just need to tell her. Mm-hmm. Uh, we really, that's where we just started leaning on each other a whole lot more. Yeah. And to say that he sheltered me is an understatement. He, he really didn't tell me anything, you know, how was your job? Great. How's yours? Fine. We didn't talk about, you know, he would have the Obviously, the family would always ask the questions like, tell me the funniest story or funniest thing you've ever experienced, that kind of thing. But yeah. that was the extent of it for a very, very long time in our marriage. And it worked, right? But now in hindsight, you know, it would have been nice to have a community of, you know, law enforcement, you know, in my case, wives that, that knew what I was mm-hmm. going through or at least could help me navigate um, because it is different, right? People that don't live this life don't, don't, they try to understand that they try to be empathetic, but they can't possibly understand it. And so I do wish that, you know, I would have been more intentional about that earlier on. And that's really mm-hmm. our message is just around, you know, being proactive when it comes to being a law enforcement spouse. And, you know, to the earlier point of, you know, living in fear versus just, you know, accepting at some point something's going to, you know, that kind of thing, that spectrum, you know, instead, I, I think it's a mindset around having plans, right? You know, I, I didn't have a plan. I didn't have anywhere for the boys to go that night. I didn't even have a list of people to call. You know, there, there were a lot of things I didn't have that I, you know, in hindsight, it all worked out. But, you know, I, I do think to your point, there, there's a lot of value in really being proactive about those things. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier, like there was such an outpouring of the community. And I think what I'm thinking, I'm almost kind of inserting myself into the situation. I'm thinking was, were there, was there at any point in time that as you're going through this process and it's hard, like the whole thing is hard and, and upsetting, you know, were you ever thinking, Wendy, like, I don't want to do this anymore. Cause I feel like that would have been my reaction. It was like, okay, like I'm done now. Like, you know, I've been hanging on and now I, I think I'm done. Yeah. It's a good question. So I, I feel a couple of things. One is, did I ever think about, can I make it as a police wife and am I cut out for this? I mean, sure. You think that a lot, but, but not to the extent of, you know, I'm going to leave my husband or anything to that extent. Right. Yeah. Um, what yeah, I, to clarify what I mean, I don't want to do this anymore. I mean, the lifestyle, not the marriage. <laughs> yeah. um, but when it came to being in the spotlight, that was something I wanted out of as quickly as possible. Um, because there was a point in time that there's a belief system that, you know, there were um, media folks camping out in our front yard. Um, they, they had been known apparently for using like utility trucks and that kind of thing. Um, and when we called the utility company, they didn't know why they were sitting in front of our yard. So there were definitely some strange things around, you know, was it media? Was it the bad guys people? You know, we knew that he didn't exactly, I mean, he was a drug dealer, right? So we knew who his 
people were. Um, so there, there was, I mean, even to the extent of like the media contacting my mom and trying to get baby pictures of him because they went to this big story and we weren't allowed to talk about it for 18 mm-hmm. months, literally mm-hmm. talk about it. And so there definitely came a point where it was like, we just really wanted to be left alone and go back to our normal lifestyle. And, you know, we do live pretty far from the city and that's intentional, right? We live on two acres. We choose to be away by design. And so it was definitely out of our comfort zone to have just that much spotlight on us from every single angle. Um, But again, I, I feel like once we got past you know, the initial, I'll call it surge. And then we had a little bit of a lull, just trying to figure out the pieces and, you know, the counseling and who needs what, and how do we go from here? And there were so many, I mean, that's part of what's in our video is it scrolls through like all the medical appointments. I mean, there's, there's still, I mean, he's got lifelong things that he'll deal with that can't be fixed. And so, um, workman's comp, that was a whole nother mess, right? So there was a whole lot of stuff from the time, you know, we finally got home and things finally settled from, you know, just the spotlight lens that we had to deal with leading up to the trial. And then I think you said it really well, the trial really just kind of brought it all back and it was really, really hard. I mean, the trial went on for what, three weeks totally. Uh, no, it was about a week, week, week and a couple of days. It wasn't three weeks even after they did that well i take that back so you do gotta add in the sentencing so the trial itself was about a week but then you had to come back for um when they this the judge didn't make a decision right at the end of the week right it was okay we'll come back next week and i'll give you my decision and then okay we'll come back in a couple weeks and i'll tell you what the sentence is and stuff like that yeah yeah it just kept dragging out and then you know probably the one thing i i was completely unprepared for was one night we were laying in bed and this was in maybe January. The trial was in November. I think it was like in January and he rolls over and he, he shows me his phone. He's like, looks like we have a new neighbor and it's the bad guy. And I'm like, I don't understand. And he's like, I've been watching to find out where they're going to place him. And it turns out they placed him eight miles from our house. (sighs) When they, when they place them, they don't consider the victims at all. It's all about, you know, them and, you know, his attorney, his children, you know, we're all within proximity. And so, you know, he was, he's a pretty laid back guy. I'm, I tend to be, you know, this was one of those things that was really unsettling for me. And so uh, we did get, you know, the, the system involved, if you will. And, and he was moved within, they told us it was going to take a couple of months. It took a couple of days. So. Um, that was a relief because candidly, you know, he had had wounds, right? All it would have taken is for one of our kids to get hurt. And here we are back at the hospital, you know, together again. Mm-hmm. That wasn't, you know, I, I will say I went quite mama bear at that point. I'm like, this isn't going to work. And so thankfully that was addressed. But again, it's just all the things that, how would you be prepared for that? You know? Yeah, yeah it's true. When you think about being proactive, I think maybe it, it is, it's like this, um, I think it's worth having the conversation, like leading into these things, gleaning off of something like this, where it's like, I'm listening to the two of you and, you know, and it's true with the whole trial aspect and not being able to even share. I don't know how much were you able to even share with your like immediate family. Um, Cause I know even with, you know, our situation, it was like, it was only the people that were there. It was very closed. And so when you're trying to process stuff and you literally can't take any of it anywhere and you're just looking at the two of you, you know, there's a really important communication piece there. And in some ways it can be a gift because if you do it well, you're leaning on each other and you're growing in your intimacy and you're right. You're not withholding those questions anymore. And, you know, and you're, and you're also making the, um, the decision to just answer them. Honestly, everybody's being honest with their questions and their answers. And that can be a great thing, but it also can be very isolating, like to feel like you can't really say much. And that's a long time, you know, 18 months of trying to work all of that out. So when you think about being proactive, I think every situation like this is going to unfold differently and you can't foresee all of it. Being proactive isn't being like um, clairvoyant, like, you know what I mean? Like being able to see into the future of how you would react with everything. But I think doing the hard work, maybe of just the conversations of, um, 
you know, I maybe even a couple having that conversation of like, I really want you to tell me what's going on at work. And I want you to tell me candidly, I don't want to feel in the dark, you know, or, or that actually, I know for me, the more communication I receive, you know, for my husband during those things, it actually makes me feel better. I don't know if sometimes on the, on the husband aspect, we, you try to protect and you think, Oh, I won't, you know, but that open line of communication can actually be very, comforting, you you know, despite how maybe alarming the information is, it's comforting to have that open door. Um, so I think in a proactive standpoint, it's more about that than like, well, what are we going to do? You know, if the, if the bad guy ends up eight miles down the road from us, you know, that that is just too far fetched to kind of plan for, but really just how do we stay connected as a family could stay connected as, you know, husband and wife and, you know, do that part well, because the rest of it is, I mean, it's so subjective you know, and it's like, if you guys can weather the storm together, um, it's not really about avoiding the storms, but weathering them, you know, that's exactly, that's exactly. And, you know, to your point on like, what could we talk about? The body cam was, you know, out there. So anything that was there, we were allowed to talk about, but you know, there was a lot of, you know, in between that we just couldn't. Do you want to tell your story about controlling the narrative? So, yeah, well, while we like to say we tried to at least be proactive and, you know, once everything had happened and everything, we were trying to, okay, what are we going to do as a couple? Um, What are we going to do about kids and everything? One thing I will tell you, we definitely dropped the ball, I guess you'd say, is that um, the body cam was out there, but because our kids were a little bit younger and we chose not to show them the body cam initially. I mean, we certainly talked about it. They knew all what happened today from us simply talking about it, but we never did show them the body cam. And of course, the wonder of technology that it is, our youngest son, who happened to be at school one day, a friend of his, they're at a computer and his friend says, hey, why don't we watch your dad's body cam? So they queued it up and they're hitting play. And then my son kind of Credit to him, he kind of realized that this may be a little too intense for me. He started to become over, overcome with emotion, and he actually hit stop. He actually didn't let the video play and said, no, I don't want to see it. So, of course, he comes home that day, and we're feeling like the biggest heels that could possibly have walked the earth and everything. So we sat down that evening, and we watched the body cam, and we spent, you know, we watched it again. You know, you want to watch it a third time, and if there's something that you have questions about, so... It was probably about a good hour, hour and a half of just simply answering their questions and making sure that there was uh, no no dark areas, that no questions that went unanswered, that we were up front with them about everything and anything that happens. So that was one thing that we definitely feel like we should have done a whole lot better from the out from the out start of everything. Yeah. And I, so let's talk about the body cam, because I think I want to hear the different perspectives of that too. Like the importance of that, what role that played, um, because we are kind of in a new era. I mean, even in the critical incident that we went through, there was no body cam back then. So it's kind of like, and I've thought about that, like, would I want to see that? And, um, I know, I think not putting words in your mouth, Kim, but I know from my husband's standpoint, he would be watching certainly from a tactical, uh, you know, aspect of, I want to see what was happening and what went down and we you know, what maybe I should have done. Um, so I'd love to hear each of you kind of give your take on the role of the body cam in this whole thing of, of what was it helpful, hurtful, you know, what, what was that like, um, when that was released and you were able to see it? So I would say from, from a police officer standpoint and body cams were actually relatively new at the time for Cincinnati, at least, um, we'd only had them a couple months and actually, initially, when when people watch the body cam video, it's kind of been chopped together because I actually when I got out of the car, I actually forgot to activate my body camera. My partner had activated his, but I hadn't activated mine because when I walked around the car and I'm thinking about, oh, I need to turn on my camera. I actually see the bad guy in the distance coming out of this doorway. And I just that took my attention. I completely focused on that completely didn't think about turning on the body cam. So my body cam actually gets turned on after we, we get to each other, me and the bad guy, we meet each other in the middle of this courtyard shots are fired and everything. And I'm down on the ground. I actually realized, Hey, you didn't turn on your body cam. And I reached up and turned it on. 
So that was where, you know, with it being new and just not having that, I guess I call it that mind muscle memory of having a habit of doing things. Mm-hmm. But in the end result, I also believe that it helped out greatly when it comes to law enforcement, because it kind of, while it doesn't cover everything and it doesn't give you the whole big picture, it certainly captures the essence of what is going on and what happens in these moments. And I think that it, when in my particular case, the bad guy was trying to poke holes in our story. One of the things he was trying to say was that my partner shot me because during the body cam audio, you hear my partner saying, I think he shot in the butt talking about me where I was shot at. So the bad guy hears this, you know, as we're preparing for our court case on his, his side, my side, he was actually trying to say to the judge that my partner shot me because how did I get shot in the butt? And it was, it was quite comical. It was just, you know, and it's clearly on video, him shooting me. And and just, it takes that whole aspect of the defense trying to poke holes in a story that there's no holes to be poked into. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, to the extent of, I mean, he ended up being found guilty of attempted murder of two officers because they were able to use that to figure out that his partner was in direct line of fire as well. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, that, that's huge, right? Yeah. Um, but I think us having the ability now as a family, our kids, us as wives, like to, to be there in a sense, to vicariously see what happened, what that looks like to hear for me, it's the audio. Um, that is the part that the audio is tough for me to hear. Um, it's very tough. And so what was that like? Um, it's like, it's time now to sit down and look at at the body cam and, and what role did that play? Um, personally, you know, for you, what was that like looking at it? And was it something that you needed to see something that you knew you needed to do? Um, but was difficult. Wendy, like, how were you feeling when it was time to sit down? And because Ken, you saw it first, right? By yourself. Is that correct? Yeah. 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 So I understand how that kind of plays out, which is in Cincinnati, homicide um, actually handles the cases. So they came to our house and it was another time where he went to cop into cop mode and was like, I can't watch it the first time with you. I, I need to look. Tactically, I need to know that like what in my head I think happened is exactly what happened. And I can't do that with you. And so his mom um, was in from Florida. Uh, We went to the basement so he could, they took over kitchen table and watched it there. Took the kids downstairs. Um, And then they called us up and, you know, afterwards. And so, you know, part of what we talk about is perspective. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the stories that I like to tell is around my mom, who really, really independent of the body cam video, but, you know, Ken's her son and and she was really, really angry about everything that happened. And and for me, that was really hard because to your earlier question, I, I was living day by day at that point. Right. It was survival mode. Right. We're just trying to figure this thing out. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I hadn't processed through the emotions yet. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, like I said, the media had reached out to her for baby pictures and she went off on them and she was, you know, just really, really angry about all of it. I mean, some of it had to do with, you know, the bond that they set for the, I mean, there were tons of reasons to be angry. So in yeah. her, I, I'm, I understand. Um, but back to the body cam video when his mom and I came upstairs to watch it she stood behind me and had her arm on my shoulder and the whole time we're watching it she's saying thank you Lord thank you Lord praise you Jesus and in just this whole spirit of gratitude Mm -hmm. and what became really clear to me in that moment was I had a choice to make right I I could be angry and I'd have Mm -hmm. a right to be angry or I could live in a spirit of gratitude that I have my husband right he's Mm -hmm. He's here to talk about it and we're going to get through this together. And so I, I kind of clung to that at that point. Um, but it was hard to watch. I still, when we play our video, hearing him moaning on the ground is awful. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the, the shots, hearing the noise of that, you know, it is hard, um, but it's part of our story, you know, mm-hmm. and I know 
what brought us to this point, I suppose, right? Yeah. Ken, did you want to add to that? I would just say, you know, once I, you know, seeing the body cam and everything, it definitely takes you right back to those moments. Um, having gone through it and as time goes, as time goes by and it fades, you know, the memory fades and everything like that. And those emotions fade, but definitely as I would say, as a, a symptom of post-traumatic stress, you know, when, when I do see the video, it doesn't bother me to per se, but it's definitely as, as I see it, I'm reliving it again. I'm not watching a video anymore. I'm actually now I'm reliving the moments again. And, but I'm okay with that. I realized that that's always going to be there. And part of that whole big picture is the same thing she said about getting angry. I choose not to be angry. Um, A lot of how we kind of go through life is we choose to focus on the positive. Mm -hmm. Um, When I, when I see the video and I reflect on that, I think about, you know, the positive things are the kind of the three miracles. I like to boil it down to three miracles that I'll share with people. I mean, I'll share, there's tons of miracles I could share about that whole night of how things went aside from getting shot being the not so miracle part about it, but uh, (laughs) um, just simple miracles. You know, the fact that um, when when we hear the whole story and like she said at court and everything, and they did their investigation is the fact that he only got one bullet off that night, his gun, one of my bullets struck the barrel of his gun doing damage to it, as well as his, his gun actually jammed after the first bullet went off mm-hmm. and the second bullet jammed in a way that it wouldn't allow that gun to fire until somebody, you know, completely cleared it and redid the gun and everything like that. But it just, stopped him from being able to do any more harm to me. Um, the second miracle I would say was the path that the bullet took. You know, I see that body cam and I realized the path that the bullet took, you know, I could have got struck in the femoral artery or more damage could have been done. And even the fact that it ricocheted off my key fob on my right leg, stopping it could have shattered a hip hit the femoral artery in that one instead or whatnot so yeah just uh, it, having a good positive perspective on the whole thing is really what kind of carries me on a day-to-day basis it's so true when you guys when i was able to to sit and and like you said you had the um the video playing with the footage and you've got all the doctors all this stuff and and, you know, I know for me, I have battled much resentment at times in this life. And I kind of had this ebb and flow where I'm like, oh, I'm grateful and it's our calling. And then, you know, something bad happens and I'm like, oh, I just want to be done. And, you know, even I've shared before with my husband being on SWAT and I can handle call outs really well. And then all of a sudden, like it's, it's a certain one and I just am over it. I'm over taking the risk is how I can feel. And I can quickly forget, um, really that same perspective that you guys began with, which is that it is a calling and that I have to trust. And I have to trust, you know, from a faith perspective, God's sovereignty, that he's going to walk me through whatever, walk us through whatever. And that I can rest in that as, um, unsettling as that can feel, it might not be the way I want it to go. And so as I was listening to your story, um, back in March, I was feeling all those feelings. And I was thinking to myself, like, I don't think I could do this. I think, I think if, if Kenny gets hit, like we're done, like I'm done, like I can't do this. And then listening to that end piece where you guys share that pers- the power of that perspective and Ken, your mom just saying, thank you, Jesus in the eyes that we all get to choose to look through life with, you know, we can look at it as the gifts, like, and how, how easy it is to take that path of anger. Like you said, Wendy, there is so much, I think, even as we continue in this line of work to be angry about and so much like injustice that you see, like you said, um, I have a dear friend who was walking through the trial of, um, and a good officer, a good friend of theirs that had, um, died years ago in a shooting The trials just now, you know, has come up and just all the things that drums up and all the anger and all the poking of the holes and just so much emotion. Um, but what a gift, that perspective, the power of that perspective of like seeing those good things as what they are rather than kind of almost giving in to a great temptation and a rightful one. And a lot of times to be angry, but what it really destroys is the very things that you hold dear. Like you were saying, Ken, with, um, you know, even just kind of feeling like it was kind of leaking out of you. It wasn't that you're being intentionally angry, but because you were holding on to anger, it's just leaking out. Um, so I know that for me, that was just 
it was just such a boost to kind of, for you guys to end that way. And for me to grab hold of that and be like, yep, that's right. Like I gotta, I gotta get out of like angry Sarah mode. That's like, forget this. Like, why are we doing this? You know, and back to like, what an honor, first of all, it is, um, to be in this unique position and in this unique life, but then also to like, um, that, you know, just your faith and, and knowing that God is there and he's walking us through and there are provisions along the way and there there's much to be thankful for. So I really appreciate you guys sharing that perspective. So as we, this, let's um, kind of where you are t- today. Uh, so we joined bless the badge in 2019. Was it that when we actually officially joined them? I think. Um, but uh one of the things after coming out through all of this and everything, we decided that, you know, we can't just keep this to ourselves. I know she, Wendy talked a little bit about how we know initially we wanted to get back to normal life, but we realized that, you know, there's a lot of people out there that they're, you know, in law enforcement, you're, chances are you're probably going to go through something like this, maybe not specifically unique to this, but certainly something traumatic, something very, 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 challenging to your family and your family unit. And we made a choice that bless the badge when we joined them would be one way to give back to other officers, especially couples. Uh, We felt that somewhere out there, someone is going to need to hear what we did, how we did it. And we want to make sure that it, if there's someone out there that needs help, we want to be the ones that if they hear our story, that it does help them. And we just felt like, that would be the best, at least the best route. And, and nowadays we don't just, it's not just bless the badge specific. I mean, we certainly, if we hear about a couple or if someone inquires with us and wants to talk, we absolutely feel no qualms about sharing our story with them, talking to them about it, answering their questions, anything that may come up. We even, even through bless the badge have got into uh, marriage coaching to help any marriages. Cause just the stresses of law enforcement, traumatic events aside, this, the stress of law enforcement in general is just such a uh, true challenge to a marriage without a doubt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I'll say, I mean, <laughs> It, it was a little ironic, actually, because we had booked Bless the Badge. They came in April of 2019. So we finished the trial in November of 2018. So we had just come off the heels of that. And, and I was talking to some of the leadership of Bless the Badge, get this random call from the founder, which was Lisa Lerner, is Lisa Lerner and Chuck Lerner. And she's like, I hear you have a story. And I was like, oh, yeah. What about it? And she's like, I want to hear it. And so we talked. She said, I think you need to tell it. And I honestly, in my gut was like, there is no way. We are not those people. We don't want to be in the spotlight. We don't want to talk. Like, we just want to be over this. We can finally be past it. And I remember he was in the kitchen and I was like, get this. And I'm totally expecting that he's going to be like, no, absolutely not. Because, you know, I'm I'm more the extrovert. He's the introvert. So you can see how I would assume that, right? And uh, he's like, hmm, all right, well, let's think about that. I'm like, who are you? What are you doing to my husband? <laughs> and so, but that was just the beginning, right? Um, it, it really unleashed a, a new version of us, quite frankly, um, because it's so much more than telling our story. Like Ken said, it, it's really pouring into marriages and just recognizing that, it is different, right? The the life that we live as law enforcement families is different. Um, you know, even when you just get really scientific around hypervigilance and stress and cumulative stress and how all of those things show up at home and just how to navigate that, right? How to communicate through that and, and how to respect boundaries on both sides to some extent. And so, you know, I, as I mentioned before, I was part of police wives. I'm still part of police wives, but in a different capacity. <clears throat> But one of the things that the Lord really put on my heart, and, and it turns out his too, was we we shouldn't be doing things independently. We need to come together in a ministry. And so no sooner than I was on a, a school board at the time, I stepped down. I was just trying to make room for whatever the Lord was doing. And the next thing you know, Lisa Lerner calls. 
hey, the Lord told me you need to join Blessed Badge. I'm like, what is happening? <laughs> and so talked to him and, you know, onward we went. And so it's been a really cool journey. I mean, we, we have learned to communicate better, right? Like we can all learn. And that's the whole thing. Like not everybody's going to go through what we've went through. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, candidly, he talks about his three critical incidents. One of the most traumatic for me, second to 2017, was a car accident he was in, you know, where, where they said, like, he shouldn't even be here. The way it hit and da da da, he walked away with a scratch on his hand. And, you know, those are signs from the Lord that he's protecting him. Right. And, and just, you know, to get in the word and know that it's a calling. Right. And, mm-hmm. Lord needs him to do this job and I need to help him. And, you know, if there's one thing that, you know, and people can argue with me on this and that's fine, but, you know, I almost take offense anymore when people say we stand behind the blue line. No, we are right there with them. And we are walking that line with them every single day. And I think as soon as we start to recognize that it's empowering, right? Mm -hmm. Have a job to do too, and it you know standing up for them and and just helping people under going back to bridging the gap, helping people understand what this life is like, you know, and and just the challenges that it brings. And, and we're human; we're all human, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. anything you would add there? Uh, we <laughs> something when we do talk and when we do our story and everything. Um, post-traumatic stress. I think I've said it, what, four times now through this whole thing, but we learned the term that we really liked and they called it post-traumatic growth. And we looked up the definite and a general definition. It means a positive change as a result of a major life crisis or trauma. And we really thought that that fit our particular story where, you know, we're trying to take post-traumatic stress and get rid of it and and take it and make it evolve. Don't let it control you. You want to control it. So we, we wanted to really grow as opposed to just, you know, they call it post-traumatic stress disorder. We would, we would, did not want to have disorder in our family. We wanted to have order and we wanted to persevere. I will go, I will say that kind of through bless the badge and everything, one thing that we kind of, and as much as we talked and leaned on each other and everything, um, we kind of went through learning as opposed to just I'm living my life in law enforcement and she's living her life as a wife and everything. We did learn that you needed to lean on each other to start with. And another thing that we'd learned through Bless the Badge was that you need to communicate with each other. And how do you do that? Because it's not always going to be roses and we're, you know, there's going to be bumps in the road, even life after being in a critical incident and you just really need to be able to listen to each other without judgment and not let anger or my way is the better way. And you're going to do what I say kind of attitude, stuff like that. We really need to learn how the other one, what the other one needs in a marriage, where they're coming from, why they need these things. And you as a spouse need to be, you need to be there for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I would actually echo this sentiment just around, I think the the moment of clarity is when there's a recognition that, you know, we're not just walking down parallel paths. We're in this together, right? And we're going to grow together and we're going to learn together and we're going to do this life together. And, and P.S. I mean, yes, he retired from Cincinnati, but he's still doing policing. Um, and you know, so it's in a different capacity at this point, but it still has the same dangers, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there as a police wife, there's a part of me that clings to what I've always clung to, which is just faith, right? I trust he's where he needs to be and God's going to take care of him. And, you know, he he's going to do his job well, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so there's an element of that. But then there's the other element of instead of, you know, a, a divider, if you will, of that we talk about it right we talk about what he sees what he hears how he perceives that um and and even any kind of you know things we want to share with the kids or any learnings and and that kind of thing so it's just a whole different lens than what we had before Mm -hmm. 
That's so good. I'm so thankful for you guys for coming on and just sharing your story. Um, we can't control what's going to happen to us, but we can control how we go through it like together and what it will, what we will allow it to do to us as a family, as a marriage, or what we will not. As we close out our time together, is there anything that you guys would just add if you want to just speak to um, maybe the couple that is maybe just living those parallel paths and they've been living them a long time. You know, what, was there any kind of advice or anything that you would just say, um, what they could start doing to bridge that gap between the two of them? Yeah. I would just say as a spouse, you know, there's some work to do around just learning, you know, and I'll do a little self-promotion around bless the badge just because they have my heart, but you know, we, we, we have three different paths, if you want. We've touched on some of them before, but one is events and conferences. It's a really great opportunity just to learn about the the physiology, I guess, of it and, and how it shows up, right? Because I, I do think there's some diligence around understanding that this isn't like other people going to work and coming home from work. It is different. And I think as much as we can educate ourselves as spouses, the better, right? And like I said, we, we have conferences that we do. Um, we actually go into departments and do department level training just to create some self-awareness around that, which is an important piece as well. And then as Ken mentioned, uh, you know, we've just become certified to do marriage coaching. And, and it really, you know, I was telling Lisa, I was like, I wish we could just go on a mountaintop and scream these things. Like there are such simple concepts that are so misunderstood, so misused, you know, you know, there, there's just so much there and it does start with that understanding, but then it's, it is like he said, the, the basic communication, right? What are some good strategies to be able to communicate with each other and, and really lean in? What would you say? Uh, I guess I would just add, you know, departments are really good about training cops and they, you know, I'm going to train you how to go out on the street. I'm going to train you how to write tickets. I'm going to train you how to arrest people, how to put cases together. Um, they're starting to kind of crack that egg of officer wellness and resilience. But I think a lot of departments are still kind of still haven't quite reached that. Well, We've got a good officer here and we're going to try and pour into them. But, you know, cops only at work for eight hours, maybe 10 hours or 12 hours a shift. And then they're at home living out probably, you know, two thirds of their life away from the department. So I think it's more that they can recognize that they need to pour into the family unit or uh, marriages as a whole. I think that that's the next step in the evolution of taking care of uh, law enforcement families. Yeah, I agree. I feel that in my heart too, because I know for us in our department, there it's just there's nothing, you know, it, it, and there was nothing. And I just read about like hypervigilance like four years ago. We've been in for like 13 years, mm -hmm. you know, and that would have been very helpful when I was seeing a lot of changes to for both of us, you know, really for both of us, because I don't think they knew that he knew he was changing, but he didn't necessarily attribute it, you know, what to attribute it to, you know. So, well, I have so enjoyed having you guys on and sharing your story. And it just gives me like, just that like gumption of like, that's right. We're going to go do it. We're going to do it well. And so, um, thank you so much for being so candid and being willing to just come and just openly share, um, some of the most, probably most difficult moments of your life, but also, um, what God has done through them and through you guys and through your marriage and just through, um, just the many things and steps that you've taken since then. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you for Thank having you. us. Thank you for listening to the Life Era podcast. We keep things pretty simple around here and don't include sponsors so that you can get our focused attention. So please subscribe, leave us a quick review or share it with other service families you know. If you would like more information or want to connect, you can find out more by going to coreyweathers.com or life-giver.org for tons of content and resources and encouraging you to create more margin in your life as well.